Today's text is Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May the hearers of God's word be blessed. All right. Good morning, guys. Go ahead and have a seat. Isn't that cool that you can be here on church Sunday morning and all of a sudden out of nowhere you feel like you're on a pirate ship? No, just me when the organ kicked in? Jeez. That was, that was awesome. Yes, it does. The organ, it's like Davy Jones. Like he was, yeah, it was awesome. Anyways, whatever. You guys totally ruined that transition. <laughs> so let me open this morning with a few questions. You can answer them if you'd like, although most people won't want to answer them out loud, and that's okay. But how did you view God before he saved you? What was your view of God? What was your impression of God before you were saved? How about now? Has it changed? Or do you still kind of view God the same way you did before you were saved? It's just that now you know that you're forgiven. Because don't be fooled that that can happen, that, that just because you are saved doesn't mean that your, your view and, and your mind automatically begins to process and understand God the way that He should be. So for many believers, in fact, I've, I've many over the years that they view God the same way they did before they were saved, it's just that now that they can claim that they've been forgiven. Lastly, how do you view God when you are lying in bed at the end of a rough Difficult day, and you think back on the day. How do you view God? You see, the reality is, is most people, even those of us that have walked with God for a while, don't answer those questions very favorably. Maybe you're with me this morning. That oftentimes our view of God is determined by our circumstances. Oftentimes, our view of God's goodness or, or, or God's kindness or God's gentleness or, or even God's sovereignty and His power is completely determined by how much I enjoy the situations in life and the things that I'm walking through. But this morning, as we start um, this series on Sermon on the Mount, um, a message from the king, and, and, and just for those of you that, that might be confused, when I say a message from the king, I'm not referring to myself. Uh, I'm referring to the one who gave the Sermon on the Mount, which was King Jesus. There's a little confusion this morning. I had to clear it up, so I wanted to clear it up publicly. <laughs> so it is not speaking of me, but it's speaking of King Jesus. But what I, what I want to spend a few moments on as we open this morning um, is this idea that King Jesus begins his message to his people with blessings. 
with blessings. Think about it. Like Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 are notoriously called the Sermon on the Mount. Those are the chapters that we're going to be walking through together. Now, before that, Jesus hasn't done a whole lot as far as his ministry. If you read in Matthew chapter 4, you do see that he called his disciples, okay? He chose them by hand, right? Jesus wasn't just walking along a beach and these guys said, hey, uh, I think that might be God's son. I'm going to stop what I'm doing and go follow him. No, Jesus divinely and sovereignly chose uh, those disciples to follow him. And then you see a very brief paragraph from verses 23 through the end of chapter 4 of how Jesus began to do certain things. He began to heal and he began to teach. And he, he began to amass a crowd. And then what we see here at the beginning of chapter 5 is in verse 1 is that Jesus, seeing these crowds that are following him because of his healings, because of the miracles that he was doing, he went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so we have to understand, first of all, that this message... The Sermon on the Mount is a pinpoint accurate message designed for a certain group of people, okay? This is not a message that just says, hey, if anybody does these things, you'll be blessed by God. Jesus is not addressing this message to the crowds. He's addressing this to his disciples. He's addressing this to those who have abandoned the world as they knew it. Remember, some of the disciples were sitting with their father in their fishing business. And they left immediately what they were doing to follow Jesus. And that's why it is so important for us to understand here that in verse 1 that it is Jesus. Yes, there. And now listen. Yes, there are unbelievers who are sitting there listening. Right? Yes, that, that's true. In fact, if you look at almost every time Jesus teaches in the Gospels, what you will see is that he was specifically addressing his disciples while non-believers listened on. They were intrigued. They were fascinated. And maybe some of that sounds familiar to you because that's how we've tried our hardest to design our ministry here at Crosspoint. Sunday mornings is designed to equip and encourage the disciples. And by God's grace, the world will be intrigued by the way we live our lives and they will come and hear the same message. But Jesus opens his sermon with a message of blessing. And that's today's title, A Message of Blessing. And see, the reason that I, I wanted to start out by asking those questions, it, it, was, it was intentional, right? It's hopefully set our hearts up uh, to be humbled um, in that oftentimes when we view God, our first thought is not a God who is good and who blesses his people. Oftentimes, we take either our preconceived notions about God prior to our faith in God, and we think that He is still the same God, so therefore, He is still sitting up there just waiting for me to mess up. Maybe, sadly, some of you have sat underneath teaching that the pastor declared that grace is something that we talk about too much. And really, what we need to spend our time on is talking about being afraid of God and being afraid of sinning so much that God will strike us dead the moment that we sin. If you have sat under that, then even though that person's not sorry, I apologize to you on behalf of that person. More likely, more importantly, not on behalf of that person, but on behalf of men and women who have dedicated their lives to proclaiming the true gospel. And that was a, a disservice to you if you have heard that. But King Jesus opens his message with blessing. Five score years ago, 
a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon of a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to the end long night of their captivity. That was the opening paragraph to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream. Abraham Lincoln opened the Gettysburg Address by saying, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And Winston Churchill, in his address to his soldiers before uh, the, battle in, in the, the initial battles in World War II, said this, In this solemn hour, it is a consolation to recall and to dwell upon our repeated efforts for peace. All have been ill-starred, but all have been faithful and sincere. This is of the highest moral value, and not only moral value, but practical value. At the present time, because the indispensable and... uh, uh, because the wholehearted concurrence of scores of millions of men and women whose cooperation is indispensable and whose camaraderie and brotherhood are indispensable is the only foundation upon which the trial and tribulation of modern war can be endured and surmounted. This moral conviction alone affords that ever-fresh resilience which renews the strength and energy of people in long, doubtful and dark days. Outside, the storms of war may blow and the lands may be lashed with the fury of its gales, but in our own hearts this Sunday morning, there is peace. Our hands may be active, but our consciences are at rest. The reason that I share these three openings with you guys this morning is to set before you the importance of the opening to a speech or a sermon is what Jesus did. You see, the beginning or the introduction of all of those speeches that I read for you and that we are often familiar with, you guys think of, in fact, even right now there's the ad on the radio, possibly the TV with Winston Churchill saying, never give up, never give up, never ever give up. Well, that came at the end of this opening stanza. You see, the opening sets the course for the rest of the message. And if we are rightly to understand Jesus as king, if we're to rightly understand uh, Jesus' kingdom and our citizenship as, uh, in, the, in the kingdom of Jesus, if we're to rightly understand the Sermon on the Mount, if we are rightly to understand the Beatitudes that we'll be looking at this morning, then we must rightly understand that God opens with a message desiring to bless His people. Like, it is okay for us to embrace that and to acknowledge that and to desire God's blessing. Desiring God's blessing does not mean that we have sold out and are now weak on the gospel or weak on mission. God's blessing of His people is a good thing. In fact, it's one of the unique things that sets people apart as God's people. And Jesus opens His sermon his message to his people, the disciples. The first people to really, if you will, be inaugurated into the kingdom of heaven with Jesus being on earth, okay? Knowing who the Messiah is. He opens it with a message that God 
wants to bless. Now, you see, in the middle of this, there is a lie that we must battle. And this lie isn't just for today's message, but it's a, it's a lie that we're going to be battling this entire series and beyond the series until we go to be with Christ or He comes for us. And that is this, that God is not good. Simply, we believe that God is not good. Trials and stripes come towards us not because God is good and has a plan, but because God is not good. And in fact, some of us might even go so far as to view God as an abusive father or a self-righteous judge that only acts and mediates discipline for his own good. Some of you, when you sin, you don't run immediately to Jesus for, um, for, uh, in repentance and confession because you're afraid that God is going to smack you down. Or you're afraid that God's not going to listen or God's not going to view you as his child anymore. And so what do you do? You spend a certain amount of time trying to make up for it. Whether you're making up for it or you're, let's use a better word, let's use a biblical word, you're trying to atone for your own sins. Even if your atonement is simply being quiet and not talking to God and withdrawing. But the truth is, this is the, the big point of today's message, that the king's message lays out a path to life so that the king's people would be blessed. Remember a few weeks ago, I don't remember exactly when it was, but we talked about God's law as we went through Psalms, right? And we talked about how when we see the word law and we hear the term God's law, oftentimes we think of our penal code system where we think you do this and then this happens. You do this and this happens, right? And so what ends up happening is in our own minds and in, in God's economy is we will say, well, that sin was this bad, so the next bad thing that happens to me, we immediately equate. Has anybody ever been sick uh, really sick and you just sat there and you began to confess every sin you ever did because you know that that sickness is solely because of the sins you just committed? Right? Like, right? And then when the first sin, you're like, man, I thought that was it. Must not have been. So then you keep going back, right? And you keep going back to all the sins that you can remember and then finally you just give up and kind of th- throw out an unspoken and say, God, whatever the sin is, I'm sorry. I don't remember it. Please help me feel better. Jesus is the king. What do we mean by king? Jesus is the one that God himself sent to rule and to reign. You see, Jesus, the king, or the one that God sent to rule and reign, opens his message to his people, declaring his desire, his willingness, his promise to bless his people. You see, that should radically change how we spend our days living for God. You see, if we believe that message, if we believe that God really was good and really wants to, to uh, bless his people, then we wouldn't uh, suffer every time we write out a tithe check or every time we go to serve or love or every time that we show mercy and not give people what they deserve. This is not just a to-do list. As we look at this message this morning, this message of blessing, and even the whole series, we have to understand that this is not just a to-do list, but it is God's heart 
for his people. How many times have you in the quietness of your prayer life asked God, what is your will? If only I knew your will. And typically the context of that is wanting to know about a job to take or a person to marry or something along those lines. But listen, the reality of those is none of those things matter. They're very insignificant compared to the things that do matter. which is knowing God's heart for you, receiving God's heart for you, and then living your life in accordance with God's heart. In fact, Paul writes, uh, this is God's will for you, very plainly. Like, like, could you imagine, think about it, if, if, if we were gathered together and I got up here this morning and I said, God has told me what his will for your life is. First of all, you'd think you're at a different type of church. But wouldn't that automatically cause you to tune in? For just a moment, you'd forget about Candy Crush and Paradise Island, and you'd go, wait a minute, I might want to hear this. And Paul says, your will, or God's will for you, is your sanctification. God's will for you is you being continually conformed to the image of Christ. Let's put it this way, very simply, God's will for you is to obey the King. And so here we see in these verses this morning, again, that the king's message opens with blessing. God's heart is to bless his people. And so verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, And he opened his mouth and he taught them. Now you see, even that right there, we've got to stop and talk about for a moment. Do you realize that in order to be taught, that the one being taught has to have an attitude and a posture of humility? You see... You can't teach, like uh, those of us uh, that are really into football, I followed um, the first three rounds of the draft pretty closely. After that, I don't care because I don't know any of them. But like one of the things that you hear a lot, whether it be in business and leadership or in church or in sports is, are they teachable? Are they humble? Or are they going to come in thinking they know everything and not receive anything? In fact, we all saw, anybody that watched it with me, saw a quarterback who was expected to go in the top Uh, In the first round, he fell all the way down to the fifth or sixth round because the comments on him was he's not teachable, he's not humble. And so on a worldly level, it's like, come on, man, get it together. You just lost 30-something million dollars because you're perceived as unteachable and arrogant. But how much more when we approach God that with our own lives, when we're unteachable? Oh, I've been a Christian a long time. I don't need to hear this. Or we look at single people who try to give advice to us when we're married, and like, you don't know anything, you're not married. You just wait. See, truth is truth, regardless of the situation that you or I are in and the differences that they may be. Truth is truth. It's not a popular message these days, but truth is truth. So he opened up his mouth and he taught them. You see, it takes humility to learn. And that transitions beautifully because Jesus is, although, uh, you know, Charles Spurgeon is uh, fondly remembered as the prince of preachers, Jesus would then be the king of preachers. And so he transitions from verse 2 to verse 3 by saying, And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see this word blessed. John MacArthur, when commenting on this word, he says this. He says, Jesus was describing the divinely bestowed well-being that belongs only to the faithful. The Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12, chapter 5, demonstrate that the way to heavenly blessedness is antithetical to the worldly path normally followed in the pursuit of happiness. So what he's saying there briefly is that if you want to have blessings from God, divine blessings from God, it's not going to look like your pursuit of worldly happiness. It's not going to look like constantly trying to get a bigger house, a bigger 401k, better vacations, new cars, boats, and the, look, and the likes of them. R.C. Sproul, I found this one very helpful. He says this when he's talking about the word blessed. This means more than the emotional state represented by the word happy. I can picture R.C. Sproul saying this. It includes spiritual well-being, having the approval of God, and thus a destiny of delight in communion with the Creator. That's what God wants for His people. That's what God has for His people. It, is, it includes a spiritual well-being. Get this, having the approval of God. Do you realize that today you can walk in a manner that has God's approval? Think about that. We talk a lot about sin and, and, and strife and the fall, and, and we need to continue talking about that. But as I've often said, we don't want to stay there. We want to move on to the good news. We want to have a good balance because what happens is either people don't spend any time talking about the bad news, therefore they have no appreciation of the good news. So we don't want to err that way. Right, But we also don't want to spend all of our time dwelling on the bad news and somehow be deceived, as often happens, that the bad news is good news. It's not. The bad news is not the good news. The bad news necessitates good news. The good news is, is that God wants His people to have His approval. And He's made a way for it to happen. He sent the King to declare... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, there are four components that, must, uh, that we must together understand if we're going to understand what, God, what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those. And quickly, they are these four things. One, to be blessed is, means that it is God-given. It is not something that you or I work for or attain or achieve. It is something that we receive. We are recipients of blessing. We do not earn blessing. We do not work for blessing. Blessing is God-given. Number two, it is given to the obedient or to the faithful, if you will. You see, the whole world does not receive the blessing of God. But it is bestowed upon. It is freely given to those who are obedient and faithful. Number three, it is against the world. You see, we can't live like the world and then get mad at God when things don't go our way or hold it against Him that life isn't what we thought it should be. God blesses those who live according to Christ's kingdom, not the worldly kingdom. And number four, this was so profound to me and, and so helpful, is 
The fourth thing that blessing, the component of blessing is that it is it's a security of relationship with God. To be blessed is to be secured in the hand of God. If blessing is God-given, and if blessing is a is God's blessing is a form of his approval of us, well then his approval equates security. So for us to properly understand all these beatitudes, and, and I don't know how many we're going to get through, uh, I'll be honest with you, um, this morning I have a lot. I want to serve and do the best that I can this morning, um, but I also know that you guys don't want to sit here all afternoon. Um, but he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by poor in spirit? This is what we have to understand. This is where Jesus starts by sitting down and teaching his disciples. Poor in spirit means humility and recognizing that your spirit is dead without God making it alive. Poor in spirit means that my spirit does not have the, 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 the necessary means to atone for the sins that I have committed. It doesn't mean that as Christians we walk around saying, oh, we're horrible, we're there, there's no value in us, oh, woe is me. No, that's not the picture of poor in spirit. It is a humility before God that declares dependence upon God. And as we know, those who declare dependence on God receive God's kingdom. Kingdom of heaven. He's talking about eternity in God's presence. Those who are poor in spirit. Listen. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who acknowledge their need and dependence on the king receive eternity in the king's presence. This is lost on us some because we don't know what it means to be in the presence of a king. But in the times that this was written, and, and in the Old Testament context as well, context as well, listen, n- nobody got an, an, an audience with the king. You didn't just walk up and knock on the doors and say, hey, king, I need to chat. In fact, if we study history, we know that oftentimes the queens weren't allowed just to go in at any time and talk to the king. But yet, the king here says, that you and I, for poor in spirit, we will have an eternity in the presence of the king. You see, the king's message is that God blesses the poor in spirit. Now next in verse 4, he goes on, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall receive comfort. So remember, Jesus is the king, and he is speaking about citizenship in his kingdom. How does one become a citizen in his kingdom? By being poor in spirit, right? So, so Jesus is building kind of an argument here, or I don't want to say argument, but Jesus is, is building his message of blessing upon pretext, upon pretext. Like there, there's some systematic um, theology or, or organization to his message, if you will. You see, because if you're poor in spirit, you're going to mourn. You realize that? Now, what is he talking about? Well, in all the studying that I did, everybody unanimously agrees that when it talks about uh, here, blessed are those who mourn, it is specifically talking about those who mourn their own sin and evil that they committed. See how that goes hand in hand with poor in spirit? So not only does the king bless those who are poor in spirit, but he blesses those who mourn. Do you realize that it is good and right to mourn your sin? We need to acknowledge and confess 
that what we have done or the way we are living or the way we treated somebody or even our motive, even if the situation turned out okay, that our motive in the situation was wrong and selfish. We're to mourn. But look at this. How does God bless those who mourn? He blesses them by giving them comfort. See, Jesus was probably referencing Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2 here, where he says, where uh, God speaks to Isaiah. And God says to Isaiah, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has, has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Talk about blessing. God promises to give double the good of the bad you've done. Do you deserve that? Do you even deserve one for one blessing for evil? No. But the king promises double blessing for your evil. For those who mourn over their sin. You see, this plagues the church, especially more so probably in the Reformed community, because what happens is we know about justification. We know that in Christ we have been justified, that He promises to do the work of sanctification that will end in glorification of our bodies in eternity. So oftentimes we can tend to make light of our sins, or we shrug them off. We say, ah, this is just how I am. Oh, they, they're just being a baby. They just need to grow up. Rather than mourning our sins. Not just because of the effects they have on earth, but because we recognize the goodness of the king and we recognize the citizenship that has been given to us freely. We didn't pay for citizenship. He gave it. We didn't even have to take a test. He gave it freely. And so when we don't live according to the king's, um, the king's kingdom, then we should mourn that. We should recognize it. Now there's balance in it. We don't walk around beating ourselves. We run to the king. Confess it. Receive that. You want to know what the blessing is that he's talking about in Isaiah? The double blessing for your sins? It's the fact that not only did God accept you before and forgive those sins, but God knew you were going to do this sin, and he'd already forgiven it before you ran to him. So why not run to him? Why not be comforted by the only king who promises comfort in the midst of your rebellion? No other worldly system promises blessing in the midst of your rebellion. Now, God does not bless our rebellion. Okay? That is not what he is saying. But when we are poor in spirit and we are humble and we mourn our sins against the king, God blesses that. The king's message is that God blesses those that mourn over their sin and evil. Then he goes on and he says, Blessed are the meek, in verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. Now check this out. So God is blessing people with citizenship, we saw already. God is blessing his people with comfort already. Now he's saying he's going to bless them with the earth? What does that mean? Well, first let's look at the word meek. What does it mean by meek? I've often heard that meek is power under control, and I really think that that is a helpful understanding of meekness. Meekness can also be looked at as gentleness or self-control. You see, gentle, we typically think that gentle is just somebody who's incapable of being powerful. 
That's not what gentle is. Gentleness is one who has the capability to be powerful and doesn't act in an abusive manner. God is gentle with us in saving us. Do you think for a moment that God doesn't have the hand to punish or to be harsh? He does. Think back with me to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve in the face of temptation. They had no self-control. And what was the result of that? Death. But they also lost, lost dominion over the earth. Now here Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who have self-control. Blessed are those who are, have, have uh, uh, self-control in, with power. For they shall receive the earth. You see, God is concerned with ultimate outcomes in our lives, not with immediate benefits. You see, when we make decisions, they're typically based on what is the immediate benefit to me? How will this make me happy? How will this satisfy me? How will this um, make me more comfortable? How will this make me more popular? How will this make me more liked? How will this prove my point? And we're very, that would be nearsighted, I believe. But God is concerned with ultimate outcomes. And so the king's message is that God blesses the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So not only are we to be meek and have self-control in the face of temptation, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they shall be satisfied. You see, God gives his divine well-being to those that hunger and thirst for what is right. Think about hunger and thirst. When you are hungry or when you are thirsty, you will do whatever it takes to satisfy that natural human need, right? That's why the king uses this language, hunger and thirst. Because what he's saying is, isn't just people who hope in righteousness from a distance? It isn't just people who occasionally donate to a righteous cause or people who show up once a year to walk a lap for a relay for life. But it's people who will do what it takes to see righteousness done to the same degree that they will do what it takes to quench their thirst or satisfy their hunger. You see, not only do we mourn our sin, but we have to, we have to move on from mourning our sin. And we move on from mourning our sin into what? Into hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What do you hunger and thirst for? What hunger do you have that you will do what it takes to satisfy? Another way to look at this is what drives your life? What do you spend your life on? It amazes me. I think I said this last week as we wrapped up our marriage series, but it amazes me how when we get saved and we come into the church, like we're no longer supposed to be radical and no longer supposed to be uh, like all out committed to things. Like it's totally okay for you to blow up everybody's Facebook page with posts with page with uh, uh, isogenics and CrossFit. Like that's not offensive because they'll fire back at you as soon as you tell them to knock it off, right? But then when we call people, God's people, to radical living for the King. Because he has granted citizenship, not in order to obtain citizenship, but because he made us citizens, when we call them to radical reorient their lives around the king, don't judge me. You're being legalistic. Those are the cries of our heart. 
because our hunger and our thirst is not for righteousness, but it's for comfort. It's for a pass to eternity. But you see, the king's message is that God blesses those that strive or work for righteousness. I just love how these build one upon another. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Do you know that it is the right thing to give mercy? You know, there's a reason that Jesus put these in the order that he put them in. And he said, blessed are those that strive for righteousness. And then he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, mercy is withholding punishment that is due. Don't forget the that is due part. You see, mercy is not just not being a bully to an innocent person. That's righteousness, not being a bully. Mercy is withholding ill feelings, ill words, ill actions from somebody that deserves it. Think about before we were citizens in the king's kingdom. That's grace. Becoming citizens is grace. The fact that God withheld the punishment we deserved until we received his grace is mercy. For those of you that were at our family dinner last week, uh, uh, we could post it on Facebook this week or something, but we watched um, uh, on YouTube, there's a, a channel that does these thug life commercials things, but they do it of, of Christians and things that they say. And so we watched one of R.C. Sproul and the question is asked of R.C. Sproul, um, you know, why was the punishment so severe to Adam and Eve um, when they sinned, and R.C. Sproul is old, um, and so that kind of sets the context for his response. Uh, <laughs> and he just said, are you people kidding me? What is the matter with you? They lived another day. And not only that, but God clothed them in his grace. The punishment wasn't so severe. The question is, why wasn't the punishment more severe? And the answer is because God is merciful. God did not give them the full payment and penalty of what their sins deserved. But in his sovereignty and in his nature, he granted them grace. He covered their nakedness. Not only that, but he promised that from their loins would come the king, Jesus, who would crush the head of the serpent. So here Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, this is hard for us. We hate mercy. Do you know that? Can I just be open and honest for all of us? And just, just, let's just get it out. We hate mercy. Even the person that we love the most, which should, for those of us that are married, be our spouse. Like, we don't even, aren't even good at giving them mercy. We hate mercy. We want vindication. Right? We want to get back what was rightfully ours, whether it be respect or affection or whatever it is. But those that have been shown mercy should in return show mercy. And on the last day, when the king returns for his people, they will receive ultimate mercy. You see, not showing mercy to others, all that says is that you don't either have not received or do not understand the mercy that you have received. Because if you understand the mercy of God, if you understand the depth of your sin and God's withholding the full punishment that was due at the moment of your sin, then you would be moved to treat people the way that God has treated you. See, the be attitudes, I hate the word attitude in this because it's not about behavior. This is all about the heart. 
See, the king's message is one that transformed the depth of the human depraved heart. The king doesn't say, show mercy, and then maybe I will have mercy upon you. The king's message is, I have shown you mercy. I have made you a citizen in my kingdom without you paying any initiation dues. Without paying any monthly dues. And without any hidden fees. Therefore, go and show mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word pure means unmixed with any other matter. Do you want to see God? Do you find yourself in your prayer life just wanting and desiring to see God? Then fill yourself with Him. Be pure in heart. Get rid of the music and the TV and the social media and everything that you fill yourself with. Fill yourself with God and you will see God. Know His Word. Not just not just certain passages that are convenient to quote in tough times, although that is necessary. Know the whole story of God's word. Know the plan of redemption. Know God's goodness to his people. God promises that you will see God. He promises. Listen, the king promises to bless those that seek him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. There's no bigger peacemaker ever than Christ can you imagine? Listen, this is, we just read right past this and we didn't, even, it didn't even, we didn't even stop our thought process. Christ is the Son of God. You and I can also be called sons of God. Is that amazing? Think about it. And what did Christ do? Christ made ultimate peace between us and God. Christ made peace. Peacemakers don't just sit and talk about peace, but they go out and they get dirty. They do the hard work of making peace. They get their reputations sullied. They get their hands dirty. They get accused of being friends with sinners, and they go out of their way, even though it is uncomfortable and painful and sometimes torturous, and they make peace, not for their sake, but for the sake of the king and his kingdom. Verses 10 through 12, Jesus says, blessed. Now listen, there's, um, okay, so now he says this in verse 10. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that right there is to all of us, right? That's to all of God's people that, that we will be blessed when we are persecuted for righteousness sake. We will be blessed by God. God will give us divine spiritual well-being and acceptance when we are persecuted for doing what is right in the name of Christ. But now look at verse 11, the focus transitions. Don't miss that. Because in verses 3 through 11, or excuse me, 3 through 10, he said, blessed are those. It's general. It's Jesus speaking forward down the lines of generations, right? So we can easily say that we are included in the those. But now look at verse 11. He says, blessed are you. He is so setting these disciples up. He is preparing them for the road that lies ahead. He says, blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus, in that moment, these guys didn't get it, but in that moment, he is kind of equating not himself with the prophets of the Old Testament, but these disciples, which is amazing stuff. You see, the king's message is different from the world's. Anytime you go to read Scripture, anytime you listen to a podcast, 
Listen, I, I was thinking this as we were singing this morning. You know, guys, we, we are served very well by Aaron and the band. Very well. Because there is great intentionality and work that goes into the songs that we sing and making sure that the words do not make us feel good about ourselves, but the words exalt the king and they refocus us on the king first thing every Sunday morning. Pure in heart, fill themselves with the message of the king that is different from the world. You see, it declares to us, the king's message declares to us that God is good. He wants to bless his people. And it calls us to not live for ourselves today, but to live for the king in eternity. And lastly, Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, in the introduction to Jesus' sermon, he lays before us not only a path to blessing, but also a picture of what it looks like to be conformed into his image. You see, the good news is, is that we can't do these... That's the bad news, sorry. The bad news is that we can't do these perfectly. I will never be pure in heart, completely pure in heart. I will never always do righteous things for righteousness' sake, but Christ always did. And that is what gives the king the authority to grant citizenship in his kingdom. And in that we should rejoice. (coughs) 